Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction. My name is Philippe Naren, and I'm joined as always by Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we'll be talking about some of our tips and the practical ways we manage patients on LAIB. So Fergal, I'm just going to ask you a few questions and hopefully we can have a bit of a conversation about how we do things. So a question that I sometimes get asked is, do you do urine drug screens on someone who's on an LAIB? What's your approach? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. And my approach, unfortunately, is not consistent. <laughs> you know, I wish I could say this is my party line, but it isn't. Now, there, are, there are arguments for and there are arguments against. So fundamentally, the reason why we did urine drug screens was to help us decide whether or not a patient was stable. And why did we decide that? It was basically so that we could determine takeaway doses for people either on methadone or sublingual buprenorphine. So if you're taking LAIBs, there is no issue with takeaway dosing. And that's the beauty of LAIB because it, it transforms the conversation from one of being an argument about takeaways to actually being a therapeutic engagement and talking about relapse prevention. So there are no takeaways with LAIB. Therefore, do you really need urine drug screens? What do you think? My personal practice is not to do urine drug screens for the reasons you've just yeah. mentioned. Uh, the yeah. only reason I do a urine drug screen is to help me determine whether or not to remove takeaway doses or not. Sure, there's an argument about screening a patient for polypharmacy use. We know a lot of our patients don't just use opiates or, or heroin or, or, or those substances. But at the same time, there's a lot to be said for a good substance use history in these circumstances. And also, what am I going to do with this information? If someone is shown to uh, be taking other substances, I will still administer the LAIB. It's not going to stop me administering the LAIB. So for that reason, uh, I don't. Also, patients find it quite stigmatizing. I find the LAIB is a very safe long-term intervention where I know that they are receiving a dose of buprenorphine. So for that reason, my practice is for my patients on LAIBs, I don't do urine drug screens. Yeah, I mean, do you think that urine drug screens stigmatize patients? I think patients feel it's stigmatizing at times. I don't think it's stigmatizing by and of itself. I think it's very important to explain to the patient why it's done. So the way I try and explain it to the patient is this is for me to know what substance you're taking and have it documented in a clear manner so I can guide my treatment in an ethical and safe manner going forward. So this is nothing to do with you and everything to do with me and my practice. So that's the way I frame it. And that's actually what I believe as well. So I don't think urine drug screens by and of themselves are stigmatizing, especially if you can explain it to a patient about why you're doing it. But some patients do feel a bit of stigma associated with that. Is that the way you've, you've viewed yeah, things as well? So Is that what your patients tell you? I've worked in services where anyone who came through the door, even if it wasn't for opioids, but for anyone who comes through the door, the first thing they do is a urine drug screen. And it's just part of what they expect and what they're told every single time anyone comes in, UDS. And so that kind of removed stigma and I didn't have any problems with it. My approach to urine drug screens and other services has been to say, look, you know, here's a urine drug screen. I need to do them maybe three or four times a year. I just, I want you to tell me what's going to be in this. 
You know, I don't believe in, in, in calling out people on the results of a urine drug screen. I think that if there are substances in there that, that require comment, I think we need to have an open discussion about it. It usually determines takeaways. And in, in the context of LIMB, that's not an issue. But, you know, if, if you've got someone who's also on, you know, he's on an LAIB and shows up positive for, you know, benzos or methamphetamine, well, that's surely an indication to actually intensify the treatment and to intensify the wraparound psychosocial support. So for that reason, I think urine drug screens are beneficial. But if their sole purpose is to determine takeaways, then there's no reason for it. So it depends on the patient and it depends on, on their substance use, really, I suppose. And there's no really right or wrong answer. But overall, I think my, my use of UDSs has dramatically decreased with LAIB. Another question that's a bit difficult to answer, well, maybe not that difficult to answer, how do you transition a patient over from methadone onto an LIIB? So I can tell you what I usually do, and it's, it's a microdose regimen. So I do small doses of buprenorphine and then transition over to Suboxone and then transition over to the LIIB, but this can take a bit of time. And in the community, I usually use patches. So I actually start off with a 40 microgram patch and then a few days later do another 40 microgram patch. And then about a week after the first one, slowly increase or start buprenorphine uh, as in Suboxone at about four and then increase by two up until they're at 12 while the patient's continuing having methadone every single day. And then once they're on about 12 milligrams of methadone, I stop the methadone and then just increase the suboxone after that, usually by about four to eight milligrams per day as to, until the patient's comfortable and then switch over to the LAIB. And this is again to uh, guard against precipitated withdrawal. Uh, this is not something that I've discovered. This is uh, a very well-known way of, of microdosing some people on buprenorphine and it's um, commonly known as the Bernese method. Fergal, is that similar to what you do, or do you have another way of transitioning over from uh, methadone over to LAIBs? It's a bit like pavlova, right? <laughs> Everyone's got their own recipe for pavlova, but everyone knows what a pavlova is. So, yeah, everyone's got their own way of doing the Bernese method. Um, but before I talk to you about what I do in my Bernese method, I just want to highlight that the... the um, Product information for Bruvidal actually allows you to transfer from methadone. If you can get a patient down to a dose of methadone of 30 or less, according to the product information, you can basically uh, omit the next day's methadone and then start um, 16 milligrams of Bruvidal weekly, the day 24 hours afterwards, and then titrate as per, per a normal Bruvidal titration. Um, I think that's a bit risky, but that's in the product information. I have never done that. I tend to do my version of the Bernese Pavlova. And you mentioned that you use Norspan patches. So I use Norspan patches, but I start at a very low dose. So I will, and there's, there's two issues. First of all, how fast, what's the, what's the starting dose of Norspan that you use? How fast do you accelerate the dose? And what do you do with the dose of the full agonist, in this case, methadone? Do you keep it constant or do you down titrate at the same time? For patients with substance use disorder without chronic pain issues, I'm happy to down titrate their dose of methadone 
as I'm up titrating the dose of buprenorphine. And I will start on five norspan patch for a couple of days, 10, 20, 40, then 80. And then once they're on 80 of norspan, I will jump onto two milligrams of sublingual buprenorphine and then go two, four, six, eight, 10, 12. When they get 12 to 16, that's the time for me to start clonidine and then cease the methadone at whatever dose they're on. And that can be done. Those, those dose changes and those, those dose increments, I think, can be done every two to three days if they've got substance use disorder and no pain. If people are on, have got a, subs, a, a prescription opioid use disorder and started out uh, because of pain on high-dose opioids, that's different. In that situation, every dose increment is at least a week apart. And I maintain the dose of the full agonist during the vast majority of the time of the titration. Because people, when you stop their, their full agonist, they, they, they experience worsening pain and it becomes a disaster and everything just falls apart. So let's say someone's on the equivalent of 100 milligrams of endone a day. I would maintain that endone and then I would start 5 of Norspan, 10 of Norspan, 20 of Norspan, 40 of Norspan, 80 of Norspan. And remember, these are a week apart. And then two of suboxone, sublingual buprenorphine, then four, then six, then eight, then 10, then 12, again, a week apart. And then stop the uh, full agonist, start clonidine, and then rapidly titrate the buprenorphine. And that's worked in the past for really difficult patients who are, who are experiencing chronic pain and are dependent on full agonists other than methadone. Um, I think the key thing is to is to give it time. And I think the reason why the Bernese method works is because basically buprenorphine's got high avidity and it is a partial agonist. So if you give it time, you're giving people time to neuroadapt. They're not getting overdoses. And also they're not getting overdoses because the, the, the buprenorphine is displacing the other mu, uh, agonist from the mu receptor and it's only a partial agonist. So you, there is a bit of an up and down, but... Most patients will tolerate uh, tolerate this this Pavlova Bernese method. Absolutely. Have you ever failed to do a transition? I have failed to do a transition, and I think it's because we were going a bit too slowly for the patient. A lot of this, you mentioned Pavlova, and basically Pavlova is an apt metaphor because everyone's got their own Pavlova. But the thing is, sometimes you've got a few different Pavlova recipes yourself, and a lot of the time, you've got to try and fix your regimen and your dose to the patient. Some patients are very keen to start Buvidal or Sublocade very quickly. Other patients are very paranoid about going into withdrawal or going too aggressively. So you have to tailor things to the patient. And a couple of the transitions that I've had that have failed have been because it's gone on too long. The patient was very adamant that they wanted to go very slow. So I started off with, like you were mentioning, a Norspan patch at low dose and then weekly up titration very slowly. But then ultimately the patient just got frustrated, was feeling anxious, and then ultimately decided to terminate the, uh, the, transit, the transition and, and stay on, on methadone. So my failures have usually been due to the fact that the process itself has taken too long or the patient in that time period has decided to change their mind and not switch over to the LAID. What about yeah. yourself? Have you ever had any um, failures in the transition? Yeah, yeah. I, I've had failures because they were too quick. They were inpatient detoxes and they, you know, they're only in for a week or 10 days and 
you know, it just didn't work because then they self-discharged prematurely uh, because it was too quick. So I suppose we're representing different extremes. You're absolutely right. You've got to tailor it to the to the patient, and you've got to you've got to manage. You know, you've got to walk with the patient. It's not as if you just set up a plan on an Excel spreadsheet and then you know go away and you know five to twelve weeks later the patient's fixed. You have to walk with the patient through that journey and provide them with the appropriate support. Clonidine helps. Clonidine helps with withdrawal management, and it, it kind of smooths out the rough edges of this transfer. I find absolutely. And something that I frequently get asked about is managing the pain of the injection. Patients yeah. are always concerned about the pain, yeah. and the first injection is usually brutal. I've had patients jump off the bed in, in, in quite a bit of discomfort. We've talked in previous episodes about ice and EMLA, which I've yeah. got to admit, I use ice rather than EMLA. It's, it's a lot easier to use, uh, yeah. and not everyone has a ready supply of EMLA around. It yeah. does help, provided the patient is pre-prepared about that. And a lot of the time in the waiting room, uh, I provide a bit of ice so the patient can numb the relevant area that's that's required. Do you have any other tidbits to deal with pain? Because uh, yeah. basically ice is usually the, the only thing that I use to, to aid yeah. the pain of the injection. Ice is pretty much the standard. But I, you can, I have heard people using uh, local anesthetic injected subcutaneously into the site of the proposed site of the injection for the LAIB. I've heard of people doing that, but I've also heard of people um, experience, very rarely, but I have heard of complications from that, such as skin ulceration and tissue necrosis. So, you know, it's rare, but it, apparently it has happened. There's no papers on it that I could find, but I've heard anecdotal reports of it. Um, and I just don't want to ever end up in that situation. So I would veer away from actually giving subcutaneous injections. Uh, I would use ice. I use I commonly use ice. If that doesn't work, then I'll give them EMLA, and I've had no problems with EMLA. It's, it, it stops the pain of the ice and EMLA. They stop the pain of penetration of the skin. But again, I think you get a lot of pain, not only because you're breaking through the skin, but because the solvent, NMP is the solvent, and that's a painful injection. And also you're distending the... The, uh, the the soft tissues of the subcutaneous tissue, so that can cause pain. So, you know, I theoretically you might consider reducing the volume of the um, of the injectate. So to reduce the volume, you might have to look at what dose you're giving and how frequently it is and what type of formulation you're using. Um, you know, sublocade is one and a half mils for the first two injections, and it drops down to I think half a mil. And then Buvidal can range between. Uh, I think it, it, I think all of their doses of Buvidal are less than one mil. So you, you've got to look at you've got to look at the the volume as well, and also the solvent. Another complication that I've seen is patients who were previously stable on whatever form of OST that they were on, switching over to an LAIB and becoming somewhat more unstable and slightly erratic in the sense that. Yeah. Going to the pharmacy, being in that routine was quite stabilizing for the patient. And we know that patients do get stabilized on OST over a bit of time. And the mm. switch has had a somewhat deleterious effect on them. Have you yeah. encountered this as well? Absolutely. So so when you put someone on, LA, on an LAIB, the immediate temptation is to say, okay, we're going to loosen the umbilical cord between the service and the patient. So think about that from the patient's perspective. They don't have to go to the chemist every day. What do they do with their time? 
The next appointment might be six weeks or four weeks. But you know, what do they do with their time? They've got nothing to fill their time in. And if they're significantly traumatized, they've got the space for anxiety and fear to come to come in and, and you know they just they, they, they don't do well. So if you are going to initiate an LAIB, you do need to plan for helping people and providing them with the psychosocial support that they need to actually maintain that transition to and, and maintain abstinence. And that just shows that, that addiction is not just an issue of neuroadaptation to opioids. Addiction is a psychosocial construct that needs a socio-psycho-biomedical model of care. And LAIB has dramatically transformed the medical bit. But you've also got to bear in mind the socio-psycho-bio bit as well. And you need, to be, you need to be aware of the ripple effect on the patient's lives. And sometimes patients don't do well on it, and sometimes they need higher intensive degrees of psychosocial support. Absolutely. And I think the transition is something to warn the patient about and mm -hmm. also have a plan in place before the injection is administered. Yeah, absolutely. So that way we can kind of safeguard the patient as well, just to make yeah. sure the patient knows what to do in the upcoming weeks, even if they're not going to be linked into the clinic or the prescriber or the person who administers the injection, that they have something else to do with their time and they have someone following themselves up to make sure that exactly. there's no relapse into problematic substance use. I, I totally agree with that. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we've covered a fair few major issues in regards to the LAIB and how we deal with problems. But one of the major issues that we get asked about is driving and LAIB use. So Fergal, what's your approach or what do you tell a patient after you've given them their first LAIB injection, or actually more practically before you've given them the injection of LAIB? Yeah. So I think I, t I tell patients not to drive on the day of the injection, especially on their first ever injection, because you just don't know how they're going to feel and how they're going to react. But overall, being on an LAIB does not actually mean you cannot drive. Because remember, if you're stable on opioid substitution therapy, you still can drive. No, they, no, there are commercial uh, standards and there are private standards, and they, they vary slightly. But the basic principle is that if you are stable, it is perfectly reasonable for you to drive. And LAIB is one of the quickest ways of achieving stability. So it, is, it should not be seen in any way as a contraindication to driving. But on that first dose, I tell people not to drive. So don't come, don't drive to the clinic and don't drive from the clinic. Get someone to bring you because you just don't know how you're going to feel. Absolutely. And that's my practice as well. We've got to be safe, especially for the commercial drivers as well, where if you're driving a, a large vehicle, you really do need to be safe. And there is a different standard as well. But you are right. Once you're stable on a form of OST, it does not preclude you from holding a commercial driver's license at all. But stability is the main thing. And to ensure the patient is not sedated or over sedated is also vital. So we've covered quite a few areas in the management of LAIB in our patients in the episode today and shared some of our tips and practical advice on how to manage a patient on LAIB. Thanks for your attention on this episode of Cracking Addiction and bye for now.